Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and today's episode is a great one with the one and only Michael Ports. Michael is a New York Times bestselling author. He's written over eight books, and he's one of the foremost authorities on dynamic public speaking, or what he calls heroic public speaking. And in the episode, we go into both the mindset and tactics that you can utilize to become uh, a dynamic and effective and highly sought after public speaker. I think you'll get a tremendous amount of value from the episode. Michael's super informative, and we go really deep into a variety of, of different um, sort of insights into effective public speaking. So uh, I think you'll really enjoy this. Before we get into it, I want to give a quick shout out to our review of the week. This one comes from Low Loves. She says, this podcast is mind-blowing, 100%, very informative, inspiring conversations, and I love the guest speakers. Michael has insightful questions that are really appealing and on point. Thank you for the five-star review, Low Loves. Uh, please go out and leave us a uh, five-star review on iTunes. If you're resonating with the podcast, it helps us to, uh, to build the community and to move up in the algorithm. And you could be next week's review of the week. So thank you so much for that, Low Loves. And we're about to get into it. But before we do, I want to give a quick shout-out to our partners on this week's episode. The first is Lifecycle. Lifecycle is one of my favorite companies. They're my go-to company for all things adaptogenic mushroom tincture. So I've been taking Lion's Mane now for a couple of years uh, to help with my cognitive, um, both my thinking as well as my deep sleep. If you haven't listened to the sleep episode, I highly recommend it. And if you want to go deep into the efficacy of mushrooms, check out the episode I did, The Mind Key, with Julian Mitchell, the founder of Lifecycle. We go into the efficacy of each of the mushrooms, from reishi to cordyceps to lion's mane, and it's hugely informative, and it's become one of my sort of top hacks, if you will, for optimal performance. Check them out, Lifecycle, L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L.com. And if you put in Peak Mind 20, you'll get 20% off your order. This episode is also brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox is the go-to source for high-quality meat delivery. Uh, humanely raised, um, grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic chicken, as well as farm-raised salmon. If you're looking for a high-quality source for meat that does not use antibiotics or hormones, ButcherBox is the go-to. They're always running um, incredible promotions, and if you put in Peak Mind at checkout, you get a really uh, nice discount on your order. It's ButcherBox, B-U-T-C-H-E-R-B-O-X.com, and I think it's super important right now that you, if you are consuming meat, that you really um, go to a source with, uh, with integrity that's, um, that's basically not using hormones, not using antibiotics, where there's a mindfulness to the humane treatment of the animals. And, and, and obviously that's going to have a huge correlation to the healthiness um, of the meat and to your overall health. So check them out, butcherbox.com. And without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce the one and only Michael Port. Okay. I am here at the One Hotel with Michael Port. Michael, it's an honor to be with you. Well, thank you very much. Yes. So I just actually watched you speak. I have known of your work for some time. Uh, heard about you first through our mutual friend, Lewis Howes. And I know that you're one of the foremost authorities as it comes to speaking and presenting your message in a resonant way. 
And when I listened to you speak, I was just kind of blown away by both your knowledge, but also some of the uncommon, uh, what I would say, counsel that you that you provided in terms of both how you how you present to evoke with the audience, as opposed to I think many people sort of have their idea of like what's going to crush and they come out and they kind of broadcast. But I love that you're talking about like how you evoke the audience and you know, just presented a multitude of, of information. So I'm super grateful that you would uh, come on and share your insights with the audience. Thanks so much. Yeah. So for context, can you give us a little bit of background? I know you've written eight books and have been uh, in the speaking game for quite some time. Um, what do you think is so magical about the stage? And why do you think people um, oftentimes yearn to utilize it to convey their message in the most poignant way? Sure. So the stage is a place where people can represent what is so significant about the world in which we live. So the stage is a place where we bring the largeness of life. We don't bring small things to the stage. The Greeks believed that gods actually lived in the theater. Really? Yes. That's That's what they thought. And, uh, and they believe that because people are so affected by what happens on the stage when it's transformational. Yes. So, you know, we have all experienced lots of different types of uh, educational uh, environments, theatrical environments. But if you think about the way that most people experience uh, spoken word education... It's, it's often informative, yep. and they feel like, well, that was helpful, but sometimes it takes them a, a lot of work to stay awake. Yes. It's a little bit like watching maybe a college lecture. Yeah. And then we also have probably experienced watching something like performance art, where, you know, the guy pours paint all over himself and then rolls around in feathers and then lights himself on fire, and somehow he makes it through. <laughs> and, and we think, wow, that was extraordinary. I don't know what it was about, but right. that was fun to watch. So you have, on one hand, an educational experience. On yes. the other hand, you have this very, very theatrical experience. But where the educational experience and the theatrical experience overlap is often where we create transformational experiences for the audience. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's our goal, is to help them change in some way. Because a speech has the power to change the world and the people in it. Yep including the speaker. Yeah. So if you are going to deliver a speech where the stakes are high and the outcome is important, then how are you treating the process of development for that speech? Yes. Are you sort of putting together a PowerPoint and, you know, pulling in some images from Google and then say, well, I'll, I'll just use that as my notes and, and then I'll kind of, you know, I'll just extemporaneously address the audience in it, and, and, and I should be okay. Yeah, because I feel like many people approach it almost like an exam back in, back in school, where yeah. it's like, or a paper, yeah. where it's like, okay, I'll, I'll wait to do that, you know, because it, it is confronting, yeah. and then it's oftentimes like, okay, how am I, per, per what you were sharing earlier, how am I conveying a piece of information? Yeah. But oftentimes from the point of view of like, what's going to sound good, or what sounds good in my writing of it, not from the place of what's going to resonate and evoke from the context of the audience Correct. listening to it. Yes, exactly right. So there is a technique in acting mm. called playing actions. Yeah. Playing actions. 
And, you know, we're not teaching people to be actors. Let's be really clear about sure. that. But there are acting techniques that you can utilize when you're serving an audience as a speaker. Mm. Right? Again, it's very different. Acting is very different than speaking. But one of the techniques is called playing actions. And the way that it works is like this. Let's say you and I uh, are brothers in this movie. Yeah. And you're the... You're, you're the favorite one. Okay. So our father just adored you. And I was a little, you know, a little difficult, a little rebellious. Um, and so then when he passed away, he left you all the money. He left you the house, the money. And I'm thinking, well, that, wait a minute, that's not fair. I want some of that. So, uh, so then what I've got to do as an actor, if that's the scenario that's set up by the writer, yeah. is I've got to then play actions that will hopefully get you to give me some of that money. And if the writing is, uh, is strong, then there are generally going to be obstacles sure. in my way. Sure. So I might first try flattery. Yeah. And I might say, you know, of course he gave you all the money. You're the favorite. You're the most delightful human being on the planet. Well, I go on for a while. It doesn't work. So they go, all right, well, now I'm going to try guilt. I'm going to guilt the heck out of him. Yeah. Right? And then that doesn't work. So now I'm going to try something else. Well, that doesn't work. Now I'm going to try something else. So great writing uh, offers a lot of conflict uh, for the performers to overcome. You're taking people ostensibly on a journey. Yes. Just like you're playing in, if you will, to these almost like mythological archetypes where people can um, kind of relate, if you will. So you're, you're evoking, this is my listening, so correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but you're, 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 you're almost taking us back to a story that any, all, anyone can relate to, whether or not we've had direct experience of it or not. It's, it's bringing us back to that shared humanity. So that's absolutely something that we do. In yeah. this particular case, um, now if we take that, um, that technique of playing actions yeah. out of acting and we bring it to the stage, yes. now the characters are you as the speaker, and then the audience members. Yes. And so you as the speaker need to be very, very clear on what your objective is. So in, the, in this hypothetical you know, little movie that we were in, yeah. uh, my objective was to get the money. That's what I wanted. My objective was to get the money. Now, probably ultimate, uh, underneath all that was really to get respect. Yeah. But let's just say that's uh, what I was focused on. So now as a speaker, if you know what your super objective is, what you're trying to achieve for that audience, then you can decide how you want them to feel at any given moment throughout that speech. Wow. Then you play actions to elicit those feelings. Now, this is, this is not something, uh, don't try this at home, kids. No, but of <laughs> course you could try this because you can't really, you can't, you know, you can't hurt anybody with this. Right. Um, but it's very, very different than the way that people typically go about uh, working on speeches. Usually they think about what information do I want to share and how do I want them to see me? Yes. But... Uh, but that's not going to change the way they feel. And it, often it's very difficult to change the way people see the world if we can't affect how they feel. Right. So if you look at the material that you're delivering and you are clear on what's my super objective, by the end of the speech, I want them to be here. Yep. And how am I going to get them there? So how do I want them to feel at any given moment throughout that speech? Do I want to make them feel provoked? Do I want to soothe them? Yeah. Do I want to excite them? Yeah. Yeah? And 
And often when we first start this, we're limited uh, by uh, the actions that we initially think of. We say, I want to inspire them. Well, okay, great, but let's go deeper. So you keep going, you keep going, you keep going, and you find lots and lots and lots and lots of different actions to play. So for the audience, it feels like a roller coaster of emotions. Yes. Because one of the things that audiences love, and this is true for, for music, uh, for, uh, for any kind of art, really, or any kind of experience, and you know um, much more than most about creating experiences for huge uh, groups of people. But one of the things that audience love is contrast. Yes. They don't necessarily want the same thing over and over and over in one uh, experience. So for example, if you went to listen to Yo-Yo Ma play the cello, and it was a three-hour concert that you've been looking forward to for months, and he opens with the most beautiful note that you've ever heard in your life, but he plays it for three hours, <laughs> you'd run screaming out of the theater. Yes. But the reason that it's such an extraordinary experience is because there's so much contrast in the music that he's playing and the way that he's playing it. So in speaking, we have three different types of contrast. We have delivery contrast, yep. so that you're delivering the material in different ways throughout. So sometimes you may be um, very stationary, very still, very focused on stage. Other times you may be very physical with really interesting staging when you're telling a story that brings it to life. Sometimes you're using video to help tell that story. Sometimes you're having the audience interact with each other to create uh, that experience. And so there's a lot of different ways to deliver the content. Then there are also um, lots of different ways to organize the content. So you want content contrast. Sometimes you're using a story. Sometimes you're using a sequential framework. Sometimes you're using um, a, a modular approach. So there are a number of different ways that you can organize the material so it doesn't always feel like it's the same. Right. And then finally, the third type of contrast is emotional contrast. And playing actions helps produce that emotional contrast. So this is one of the things, there's two areas where Speakers, whether they're very new or very experienced, often feel the, 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 the most limited, where, where there's the most room for opportunity. One is this concept of influencing how they feel emotionally throughout by yep. playing actions, because it does take some practice. Uh, and then number two, staging, blocking. Mm -hmm. Because generally... And for those who are listening who don't know what blocking is, it's, it's using different parts of the stage. Correct. Uh, it's where you are uh, on the stage at any given moment. Yes. And so typically you see either a speaker just stays where they are yep. or they wander around the stage. But think about this. Either one, whether you're staying where you are or wandering around the stage, what you're doing physically may not actually be aligned with what's coming out of your mouth. Right. So if and you're body language actually is oftentimes more evocative even than than our words. Correct. Yeah. And so we cannot, you know, we, so we don't do um, sort of put on body language like I will open my arms this way right. and that will mean this and then right. I will, you know, give them a thumbs up and that means, you know, that doesn't work. Because you also lose authenticity. I feel like hundred percent. When you watch like an infomercial and the guy's like doing the same motion all the time, yeah, because like someone taught him that or whatever, and you're like, this doesn't read as doesn't feel honest. Exactly. So here's the thing that's so interesting about performance is that sometimes people think when they hear performance they think fake. Yeah. Well, okay, so. Yeah, of course, if an actor is playing a role, you know, Tom Hanks is playing Captain Phillips, he doesn't actually think he's Captain Phillips. 
He knows he's Tom Hanks playing the role, and we know he's Tom Hanks playing the role. But the reason that we resonate so much with an actor like Tom Hanks or Meryl Streep is because they're the most honest performers. Yes. The reason that sometimes you know people uh, will poke fun at soap operas is because it feels so dishonest. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's actually something that could really happen right. in the way that it happens. And so the more honesty we bring to the work, and here's the irony, in order to bring an enormous amount of honesty to the work, it needs a lot of rehearsal. Yeah. Now, that might seem strange, because, yeah, you could just go up there and just be honest and... Wing it. Wing it. Yeah. Um, but, but uh, you know, this is, why, this is why when you go to Hamilton, it costs $1,500 a ticket in the cheap seats, <laughs> and it costs $40 to see an improv show, because right. sometimes the improv show will work, sometimes it won't, but you figure, you know, it's 40 bucks, have a couple of drinks, it's a good time. But Hamilton's going to work every single time yes. you go see it. Every time. So you're willing to pay for it. Uh, and that's one of the big differences between high-level professional speakers yeah. uh, and folks who are sort of thinking about, you know, doing a good job, but they don't really have a process for it. So you can't, you can't blame anyone. You can never say, oh, they're no good. Yes. Because then you're a critic. Everybody is doing their best, even when we think they're not. And maybe even especially when we think they're not. Because if they knew how to do it more effectively, don't you think they would do it more effectively? 100%. So what, let's not blame people for any of this. Let's just look at what's the opportunity right here in front of us to say, how can I just improve what I'm doing to be just a little bit more effective so that I can actually change the world one speech at a time? I love that. It, it reminds me, I was just thinking in my head about, because I... There was a period in time where I got uh, invited to speak at TEDxLA, and I was going through the top 10 TED Talks. And, of course, Sir Ken Robinson is very different from Amy Cuddy. Yeah. But they all had, you know, this, this there, there, were, there were elements that, and I'd love to get your perspective on what the elements are for a, a standout, excellent, resonant talk. But mm -hmm. one of the things I just want to share was at that time I was doing a leadership training. It wasn't actually a speaker training, and I know that that's one of the things that you offer and are amazing at. But one of the things that it, it really helped me with that I think could benefit the audience is they had a particular paradigm where they said, and this was their own sort of uh, quadrant, like people have human design or different ways of thinking about things archetypally, but they had this notion of a, a, a promoter, a supporter, an analyzer, or a controller. Mm -hmm. And their view is that basically everyone has an element of all four of those things, but generally we're more dominant in one area or the other. And what I liked about it was they talked about if you're actually trying to speak in a, in, in a way that evokes, and per, per exactly what you're saying, in a way that evokes that can lead to transformation. So not just like, oh, that was informative and, and, or entertaining, but actually like you leave different than when you came mm -hmm. from that speech. They talked about actually, and this is analogous to what you were sharing, going through the variety of human experience such that you're speaking to each person in that room. Because some person's going to listen to that and be like, you know, like, I'm going to empathize because I'm a supporter. I want that person to feel held and seen, you know. Yeah. Whereas another person's a promoter, and they're like the guys that are out there like, and tonight, you know. And it's like, so moving through the varieties such that you speak and elicit and evoke those elements 
and it lands where people are. So speaking to where they are was so powerful for me. Yes. And I know that in what you were sharing, a lot of it was around this notion of that, like how you evoke and the varieties of, of different experiences and then how, as a speaker, one can approach that, both, I think, technically as well as mindset-wise. Mm-hmm. At least that was in my listening. Yeah. Um, but if you could share a little bit more about, like, what, what you see those, some of those elements to, as being in sure. terms of, like, how one can evoke and, and why that's so essential to creating sort of a transformational talk. Sure. I'd really like that. I, I think that's really nice. I appreciate that. So w- one of the things that I mentioned in this speech earlier today was that there will be something for everyone. Yes. But um, everything isn't for you. Yes. And so when we're designing speeches, we want to take into account who's in the room. Yeah. So the first thing we want to make sure that we understand is the way the world looks to the people in the room yeah. based on you know, your topic. Or, you know, if, you're not, if you're not talking about health and fitness, analyzing how they feel about health and fitness may be interesting, but it may not absolutely be necessary. Sure. So it's, as it relates to what you're presenting is, is what we need to focus on first. Uh, and if we understand that, then we can look at, well, what are the audience's hierarchy of needs? Mm. This is a model that um, Andrew Davis and I have created for a book that we have coming out uh, in this summer, actually. It's a super secret project, so don't tell anybody. (laughs) (laughs) But but we call it the audience hierarchy of needs because when you're you're giving a speech, especially in the business world, you have at the lower level the practitioners, and they need how-to advice. At the next level up, you have the managers, and they need how do we advice. And then the next level up, you have your executives. And they want to know how do they do this, meaning how do other organizations do the things we're trying to do so we can appropriate, cross-appropriate from other industries or other spaces. And then the C-suite, they want big new ideas that change the way they see the world and challenge their conventional thinking. Yes. So if you're... If you have a, a room that's only C-suite, then you really don't need to spend a lot of time on how-to stuff. Right. Uh, if you do, they're going to go, ah, this, is, uh, I don't, this is not what I need. I need big ideas that challenge me uh, and challenge conventional thinking. Uh, but you may have an audience where you have all of them. So you then need to speak to all yes, of those different audience exactly. levels. And here's what happens. Um, very often, meeting planners will ask speakers, Uh, to do a lot of how-to stuff, even in keynotes. However, a keynote is really designed to be a how-to-think speech, to change the way people in the room think about this particular topic. Now, why are the meeting planners then asking for how-to stuff, you know, key takeaway kind of stuff? Well, it's because they read the evaluations that come in. And the evaluations often say, we want more how-to stuff. Why is that? Well... Who fills out the evaluations? The practitioners. Yes. The C-suite and the executives, they're not filling out the evaluations. So often those evals are skewed. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. So, you know, these are only things that you would know if you study this and you've spent decades in the industry. Uh, otherwise, how on earth would you know? Yes. Um, and that's something that I think is really, really important for everybody who's listening to remember is that you can't beat yourself up for not knowing something. Yeah. Uh, because... You, you, you never, you know, 
you can only, I mean, I beat myself up for all sorts of things all the time. I mean, I'm so black and blue all over, it's terrible. But I'm, <laughs> I'm getting better as I get older. But if you know how to do something and don't do it, then you should say, okay, you know what? Next time I got to do better because I knew better. Yeah. But if you had no idea and you didn't do the thing, how can you get, how can you get upset with yourself right. for that? You can't. And so all of these things, you know, we learn over time as they're needed. So somebody right now who's listening, they may go, oh, I'm not doing a lot of speaking, so you know, I'll listen and it's interesting, but it may not be immediately relevant, but in a year, they're gonna remember, oh yeah, remember that, that interview we're talking about, and then it'll be relevant. Right now, somebody might be listening going, yes, this is exactly what I needed right now. Yeah. Uh, so you, know, you generally learn in real time as you need that information, so just don't beat yourself up you know, if, if you didn't know something that you wished you had known. Well, people say, right, that, uh, it, that the greatest fear out there is, is the fear of public speaking. They say, and for some, even worse than death, yeah. right? Yeah, well, well, I got, okay, I got to jump in because, yeah. listen, it's actually not true. Right. So okay, there's this good. supposed study yeah. that was done that says people are more afraid of public speaking than dying. Now, let's just break that down for a second, and then I'll tell you what the study was actually about. So... Let's say you said, Michael, I'm absolutely petrified of public speaking. I mean, I, I, I would rather die. I'd say, great, I have a weapon right here with me. I can do, to, you know, I can do this for, I can help you with this sure. if you would like. So, you know, either right now you give a speech, like just five minutes, or I could kill you. Which would you I prefer? Would give a speech real quick. Yes, I think most people would. <laughs> unless somebody, and this is so very dark, unless someone has an actual death wish, I think they're going to go, all right, I'm speaking, I'm speaking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah? You know that, uh, the, you know, the old thing, like your money or your life, when yeah. somebody, you know, holds you up? Yeah, this go. is like, you're, you know, speaking or you're dead. I think most people would speak. So, but here's the thing the study was not actually trying to determine which was a bigger fear, it was trying to determine which is a more present fear. And of course, public speaking is a more present fear because it's something that we are faced with almost every day. Yeah. Fortunately, thank goodness, we're not faced with the potential, you know, we're not thinking about dying all day long. And so it's actually just more present, not a larger fear. Yes. It's just, that's a very important distinction. And one of the things that's also important for speakers to do is make sure that they study the studies that they're referencing. Yes. Because often you'll hear someone say, you know, there's a study that blah, 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 and it's actually patently false. Because, you know, the, uh, um, there's a great uh, uh, quote, actually right now I don't remember who it is, but uh, even if you don't remember who said something, you, you can still say it, you just have to say someone else said it, yes. so you don't try to take the credit for it. But you know that, that expression, uh, the, the, a lie can spread around the world faster than uh, the time it takes for truth to put its boots on? I didn't know that expression, yeah. but I like and it. And we live in a world now where, you know, uh, people have their own facts. Yes. Uh, and so we just have to be very, very careful that we're not spreading. Now more than ever. In the, correct. In the era of fake Misinformation, news. right. Yeah. And I think that's actually a really astute point because, you know, one of the things I think is important is like, you know, we, we per your point, right? It, someone may not necessarily be giving a keynote address to the United Nations next year. But we're always public speaking all the time, right? To have the courage to go speak to, like, maybe you, there's, like, a, a woman you're very attracted to, but, you know, to have the courage to, you know, a present. And, and, by the way, that's a very, like, your way of beingness, right? Yes. It's like you could, you could be dressed the same way, be the exact same person, 
And the, the, the resonance that you create in that other human is entirely contingent upon your way of being, yes. a.k.a. your speaking, but also your, your body language, your, you know, your demeanor, your yeah. communication. Yeah. And I think, I think that's why what you teach is so, so valuable because, you know, we, we often think of public speaking as like the moment when you get on stage, but the world is a stage. Yeah. And, and to your point that you just Shakespeare made, said it. Yeah. yeah. All okay. the world's a stage. It, it, it is all, and women, it is all a stage. players. And, and, and exactly right. And the social media, interestingly enough, is another context. And don't we, get me I've, started on social media. Yeah, the, so, but the oh social, and, and to your point about facts, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think this is interesting, right? So yeah. a friend of mine, Max Lugavier, uh, presents a great deal of information, and he actually deconstructs. And he's actually grown a huge audience, to your earlier point. Yeah. Um, he's grown a huge audience. Why? Because he's actually demonstrated a lot of the fallacies, like a lot of the commonly held conceptions, like even the food pyramid, for example, yes. that many of us lived off of for a generation is actually based off fallacious science. Right. Uh, and now there's the research. So yes. he'll actually break that down and be like, oh, actually, just like you said, Actually, everyone says that, but that's not actually true. Same yeah. thing with the food pyramid. Everyone thought that was true. Actually, that's not true. And here's the research. And he actually cites yeah, it. Right. And I think part of the reason he's been able to grow such an audience, which now has led to him speaking on also, coincidentally, bigger stages Great. in terms of actual keynotes, is that he presents and sort of debunks the myths that are common misconceptions and then quotes it with science yes. that are actually cited. Yes. And then in the speeches does the same thing. Yeah. And I think to the earlier point I had made about the analyzers, yeah. that's one of the ways in which I think you lose credibility real quick, especially with an analyzer. In the 100%. Audience. Because if you're, especially in, here in L.A., you know, there's a lot of woo-woo people, and I'm not necessarily like close to all those ideas, but say that that's an idea. Don't, don't you know, discern that as science. Or if you right. are going to say it's science, Bring the citation. Yes. You know, what, so what, what, what research? One of the ways uh, to do that and, and, tr and put it, turn it into a practice that yes. will help you, not just on stage, but in, in your, our everyday life, yes. is to stay away from using absolutes, mm. or at least do your best. Yeah. Because when you use absolutes regularly, uh, it gets much easier for people to poke holes in your arguments. Totally. So if I said, well... You know, I mean, everybody thinks that, you know, home buying is a good decision. Well, that's patently false <laughs> because there are going to be people who think, no, that's not a good decision. Or even if I said no one likes earwax flavored ice cream. Yeah. Now, you might think, well, that seems reasonable. No one. But you know what? You might say, well, you know what? There was a kid in my second grade class named Fritz. And Fritz used to put his finger in his ear and then he'd suck on his finger. I bet he would like earwax flavored ice cream. So... If, you, if the audience or anybody you're talking to starts trying to f poke a hole yeah. in your argument or is trying to figure out a way to very easily say, no, 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 not true, uh, then what happens is they may discount everything you're saying. Right. Because here's the thing. If we're asking people to change the way they see the world, it might be provocative. So if you're bringing uh, a concept to an audience uh, that challenges a long-held belief uh, for people in that audience, they now have to... R reflect on 20 years of decision-making based on this belief that they had. And if, if they can get out of that, even if they are well-intentioned and would like to change or improve, they go, no, see, that thing they said about the, you know, whatever, earwax-flavored ice cream, that's not true. 
so they can discount everything else. Yeah, if you say one thing they, they, they discount, it, it, you lose credibility across the whole it gives you It gives you an excuse. So what we can do instead is to say, look, very it's, it's, it's unlikely too many people like earwax-flavored ice cream. We, so we, you, we just create a little more room in there for other perspectives and other opinions. Say, look, it's possible that. You may feel that. Often people do this. So now there's room. And when you leave room in your arguments for other people's perspectives, then other people are more likely to consider your investments. Uh, your, not investments. We were talking about houses, investing. Uh, no, your, uh, your arguments. Yes. Yeah. Let me ask you a direct question about this. Yeah. Because this is actually something that I think about a fair amount. Because I'm very much, I would say, more of a diplomatic articulator. In, mm -hmm. in other words, I definitely subscribe to what you just explained, yeah. where I'm trying to think maybe to a fault about everyone's listening. And, you know, if I'm in a room, I'm, I'm always sensitive to like, oh, is that person not being talked to? Yeah. You know, like, so I have a very sensitive ear. Now, juxtapose that, Gary Vaynerchuk, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, I think many people listening will likely know who that is. He has a very different approach. Mm -hmm. I, my experience of him is he comes at things with a definitive, like, this is how it is. Yeah. Like, I don't see a whole lot of equivocation. No. And I, he, like, he'll hang, his, he'll hang his hat on the fact that everything he's saying is, like, true. At least he holds it that way. Mm -hmm. And he's been able to build quite a significant following sure. uh, in doing so. Now, because it seems to me that Gary may be, you know, to use your analogy of the earwax, he might be like, earwax ice cream is the best thing in the world. And because of the way he comes about it, mm -hmm. I feel like he, he, you know, some people obviously create that controversy or like, you know, some people be like, oh, this guy's full of it. I don't, I don't believe in it. But yet a lot of people really resonate with and rally behind that, sure. that, that, that almost like, I, this is definitively true. Certainty. This is how it should be. It's like, I feel like people want to know, like, how do I do this? Yeah. You know? Um, so how, do you, how does one find, uh, because I think what I really resonate with what you were saying, yet if I look at someone like Gary Vee or people who are looking at speaking, they're like, wow, this guy's got 7 million followers. He's speaking all the time. Maybe that's the only way to do it mm -hmm. or, 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 or at least a very successful way to do yeah. it. How does one find their own voice or their own way that's authentic to them yeah. that creates the greatest resonance and also frankly keeping it very real and tangible like actually leads you to get booked and yeah. like actually people want to hire you yeah exactly <laughs> so that kind of certainty can certainly work very well uh, in marketing yeah it can work very well uh in spreading propaganda yeah uh, and building uh, uh segregated uh groups uh who oppose each other yeah uh, it is, you know, it's the it's the methodology that uh, people with divisive ideas will often lean into, uh, and and each one of us needs to decide how we want to show up in the world. Yeah. And yes, you absolutely can build a massive business. You can build a big following. You can make a lot of money. You can even become president of the United States with absolute certainty. And all of those things are possible. The question that I would posit is for each person listening, how do they design their value system? And how does that value system show up in their work? And it's going to be different for everybody. It's not my job uh, to suggest somebody should follow one you know, value system or another. It's not your job. It's, it's every individual's own responsibility. And I would say this, that I just feel if you have any anxiety around presenting your ideas, 
or if you're worried about being rejected, one of the ways that, one of the things that makes it a little bit easier to get into being comfortable presenting your ideas is to leave some room for other ideas. Yeah. Because you're less likely to get the kind of pushback that you would if you came out with absolutism. Very true. So it can work, absolutely. It definitely can work, but it's really a personal choice. Uh, and for me, personally, I want to leave room for as many different voices as possible, including Gary's, you know? Yeah. I think that's what makes the world a, often a very interesting place. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I also think it depends on who your audience is. Yeah. Uh, and l I'll, let me really, really clear, when, with this next statement, I'm not in any way suggesting that Gary's audience is not a sophisticated audience. I want to be very clear about that. So if somebody tries to <laughs> take that and twist it, please do not. I am not saying that. I am saying, however, that Sometimes sophisticated audiences have a harder time accepting absolutism yes. because they are, they are really thinking deeply about the issues. And if they have a lot of life experience, they often go, well, you know, there are there, more than one road leads, you know, to Damascus. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it in part depends on, who, you know, whom you're speaking to. Yes. So it's really a personal choice. I, I resonate with that because it's kind of like we, we were having a conversation around lunch and I shared with you, you know, I very much resonate with people that actually are, are not definitive, like the elders. I, you know, I've been very fortunate to study with, with several very profound elders, you know, almost Yoda-like figures. Yeah. Uh, and they're all, they're profoundly wise. And the way that they instruct is not definitive or prescriptive in any way, shape, or form. They're not like, it's actually the young, like, hot shots I see that are like, do this, don't do this, yeah. you know? They're very much like, there's no prescription in their methodology. It's very much like, you know, I'm going to tell you a story. And then yeah. you can find in, yeah. the, in the parable yeah. or in the anecdote the sort of solution. So there's a profound wisdom and almost technology and ancient technology yeah. in, think in eliciting. It sounds like what you're getting at is contextualizing the idea for somebody. Yes. And one of the things we know about learning is that when somebody is, you're, if you're trying to teach a new concept to somebody, uh, often it helps to first share something that they already understand yes. that's similar so that they can then contextualize the new idea. Well and so what the elders that you're referring to seem to be doing is offering context. Yeah. And then the student, if they are inquisitive and curious and trying to make sense of the world themselves, they will then uh, look into that context that was created for them and start to try to ask questions and find answers to those questions. And when you do that for yourself, the knowing that you have is really quite comforting because you always know uh, that you may be wrong. <laughs> and, you know, I'm turning 50 this year, and what, I've, what I keep discovering is how many things I need to unlearn. Well said. Uh, it's not just learning something new. It's like I got to get rid of some of this old programming yes. around this or that or the other thing. And if I can do that, then maybe, you know, things start getting easier. Wisdom is often a, uh, a, re, a, re, a reassessment of knowledge that we thought we once had. <laughs> yeah. And you know one of the things that's helped a lot is not striving so much. Yeah. You know, look, we're in L.A. now. This is the, the city of strivers, right? A lot of people are out here trying to make something of themselves and, um, you know, hustling and, and, and 
and I've been, you know, trying to make something of myself since I was, you know, a kid and hustling for the, this thing and then that thing. And then as I got older, I kind of went, oh, that's tiring. That's yeah. exhausting. And, and what's it for? Is it for status? Is it for money? Is it for fame? Is it for ghost. attention? Yeah. It's a hungry ghost. And so if, you're, if, you, if you do get anxious about speaking in public or giving a speech, or if you're worried that people will question or reject your ideas, um, maybe we can separate a little bit from the outcome yeah. and just focus on trying to be helpful. Yes, so I love that. I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I had a client call me up. And uh, she was very, very excited because she had just gotten booked on Good Morning America. And that's a big get for an author. And she'd been working for months to get on this program. So she called me up and said, Michael, I got the show. What can I do to be good? I said, well, you can't. <laughs> and I took a very long pause. And she said, wait, you don't think I'm good? I said, no, of course it's not that. I think you're wonderful. But, you, but it's not typically effective for you or for them to go into that situation trying to be good. Right. But what you can do is go into that situation trying to be helpful. Yeah. Because if you're helpful, it's likely most of the people watching will say, well, that was really good because it was helpful. And it takes the pressure off of you to be good because what does that mean? What, what does it actually mean? Well, it also takes the le lens off of that self, like that, that, that keeping things – that's actually where you get nervous, right? If you're obsessed with Self-obsession. Whereas if you focus out, I mean, that's where you get out of any kind of – any way you're stuck. Correct. It's like, literally, like when I'm in a, in a bad way, it's like buy the guy behind me a, a coffee at Starbucks. Yeah. Anything that focuses yes. you out of your shit. Yes. You know, pardon my onto, language. Yeah, but, yeah. You know. Onto something yeah. else that has some meaning for you. Exactly. Um, that affects you know other people in a meaningful way. It's going to bring you some you know some meaning and some value yourself. So, so I just think a lot of times, uh, whether it's a pitch meeting or a proposal to your boss or you know something on a much uh, bigger scale, uh, we often try to be good. Yeah. And then if it doesn't go the way that we wanted it to go, what do we do? We feel shame yeah. for who we are because we think, oh, that means I'm not good. But that's not really what's going on. Maybe the proposal wasn't as effective. Maybe you just missed, um, you know, a key element. Uh, or maybe the pitch didn't work because, you know, the, the, the buyer has a brother-in-law who sells the same thing and is just going to go to the brother-in-law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's so many different reasons that are actually outside of your control. And some are inside your control. But if we can separate them from the idea of whether you're good or bad then it's actually much easier. And if something doesn't go the way that you want, you can then look at the actual work and you can say, well, what can I improve about the work yes. so that the work is better? And then in turn, I'll be able to produce the results that I want and I won't be just focusing on getting approval. Yes, I love that. It, 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 it brings up for me, I mean, as you, I mentioned to you earlier, my background was creating a music festival. And I always took note of when a song really landed with an audience, right? You know, when, when you could feel like they're singing along to the lyrics. Like, yeah. We all know that feeling where it's like when a music like, become, like lives in someone else's heart. Like it, comes, it becomes alive. And I feel like occasionally also a speech does that, right? Yes. It's like, wow, you're listening to a speech and you're like, whoa, like everyone's resonating. Like obviously that's oftentimes when the standing ovation comes because you knew like if everyone stands up at once, they're like, well, okay, <laughs> they created the music in someone's heart. Yeah. And to me, like one of the things you just said, which is, you know, how can I be helpful? 
to me, that's one of the key elements. If I were to ascertain, like, yeah. okay, that, to, to creating something that is a musical evoking speech. Because to me, being helpful is thinking about what lives in the heart of another. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What are other elements, if you will? What are the musical elements, in your view, um, that are sort of tangible that people can think about that go into, you know, the elements of a great, of great, of great speech? Yeah, sure. Well, actually, there are, there are really five foundational elements to a great speech. Yep. The first is a big idea. Great. If the speech doesn't have a big idea... Um, it may be uh, an effective uh, sharing of information, yep. but it probably won't be transformational. Yes. So it, it may be worth uh, doing uh, in a particular situation, but if you do want to create something that's transformational, it generally needs a big idea. Now, a big idea doesn't necessarily need to be different to make a difference. It just needs to be true for the people in the room. Yeah. So take Martin Luther King, for example. His I Have a Dream speech, one of the greatest speeches of all time, uh, that was one of the most important speeches of all time, transformational speech. Well, what was his big idea? His big idea was that men and women, all of them, are created equal. Was that a new idea? No, of course not. It just wasn't realized. So it's not newness that everybody's always looking for. And, and, and that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of the marketers will teach you. You got to be new. You got to be different. You got to be hot. You got to be, right? You're like, okay, but how about some, how about some truth, timeless, you know? Yeah. yeah, some timeless truth. So that was something that wasn't yet realized. So that was a big idea. And sometimes people get a little bit um, nervous about this concept of a big idea because it seems like it's big. You know, it's very heavy. I don't have such a big idea. Well, let's think about it like this. Instead of worrying about the size of the idea, Think about what frustrates you. What drives you crazy about your field or, you know, some aspect of the world? You know, what's the thing that you could talk about till you're blue in the face that could keep you up at night? Because often that's going to lead you to your big idea. Yes. Uh, because you're, the big idea is addressing some significant problem for the people in the room. Uh, so that's the first element. The second element we already mentioned, which is understanding the way the world looks to the people in the room. Because, again, if, even if they really resonate with the big idea and they think you're absolutely you know, uh, fabulous and they like your ideas, if they can say, well, yes, but that's for somebody else, then they can discount it. Right. You don't really understand me. You know, sometimes uh, when uh, big corporations will call us up and they say, well, we want you guys to come in and help us. And we say, okay, well, what's going on? They say, well, we're different than everybody else. No, you're not. Not really. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and and a, a lot of, you know, people, they realize this over time. Like, we all think we're so dramatically different. And yes, of course, we're, we're individuals and then corporations have some differences. But fundamentally, most of the problems we're trying to solve, we share. Sure. So, you know, there's some universality there. So number one, the big idea. Number two, the way the world looks to the, audi to the, to the, uh, to the audience in the room. Number three... the consequences of not adopting the big idea because often those consequences are what are going to drive people to take some action. Yeah. Number four, the rewards of the big idea 
And number five is the promise. Now, the promise is, you know, helps deliver the rewards and the consequences, et cetera. But the promise and the big idea are different. So uh, I, the first book I ever wrote was called Book Yourself Solid. I wrote it in 2005. And uh, the big idea behind that book is that marketing doesn't actually get you clients. It's what you do once somebody becomes aware of you that actually books you the business. And, and people often struggle when they're just doing one marketing tactic after another, after another, after another, but there's no um, meaningful process of relationship development once somebody becomes aware of you. So it's very straightforward. Um, but the promise of that book and the speech, of course, that accompanied it was that if you, if you adopt this particular system or this protocol, then you'll get book solid, you'll get clients. So the big idea, uh, it, it, you need a big idea in order to deliver the promise. Yes. Uh, so people are working for that promise, but ultimately the promise brings the rewards. There are financial rewards, there are emotional rewards, there are physical rewards, and of course, in some cases, there may also be spiritual rewards. Yeah. Uh, so those are the five elements that we're looking for. So the big idea, the promise, the way the world looks, uh, the uh, consequences of not adopting that big idea and achieving the promise, and then the rewards uh, that come along with achieving the promise and adopting this big idea. Love that. So that's those you're gonna most great speeches you'll find have those uh, those fundamental elements, elements. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's not a proprietary concept. I mean that's something that that you know we were taught when I was in grad school at NYU uh, in in acting when we were looking at you know uh, how um, like what what makes a, a great story, what makes a great play, uh, and then I just sort of transferred it over to speaking. So. It, what you, uh, first of all, I love that you broke those down into sort of these archetypal elements. Um, one of the things that came up for me as you were talking was, I was thinking about, because you related to acting, like a big film. Yeah. And, you know, my background was in sort of social impact and, and creating these cause campaigns. And I think oftentimes about all the money and energy that goes into creating sometimes a wonderful film. Say, like, An Inconvenient Truth, for example, brought a tremendous amount of awareness. But oftentimes, there's an there's, a, there's an imbalance between the amount of energy that goes into preparing and then the delivery and not a lot of energy into the action. So in the social impact yeah. context, right, it's like we created an amazing film, we spent millions of dollars, but then people throw their popcorn in the trash and they kind of move on to the next thing. They don't actually yeah. translate the takeaway into something that's truly transformational not only for themselves, but in, in this context, the planet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not everyone listening is per perhaps up to social impact, but what the idea I'm getting at is there's generally oftentimes an action that we're trying to elicit. Mm -hmm. You know, that may be something self-interested, like someone's trying to sell a course or, mm -hmm. or whatnot, or it could be very altruistic in, in terms of someone's trying to enroll someone, you know, in the context of a religious idea, it might mm -hmm. be into their community or their belief of salvation or uh, in the context of social impact into being part global citizen, we wanted to basically build a movement. So we wanted people to, to come into that movement. So oftentimes people have, for lack of a better term, because it sounds very transactional, but an agenda. They mm -hmm. have an idea of what they'd like that delivery, to, where they'd like that to lead. Um, but oftentimes, in my experience, uh, it may not convert to that desired action. Sure. Do you have any insights or thoughts around how to create a context where an effectively delivered, evoking speech also has a corollary successful action? Well, if I could give you uh, an absolute answer on that, yes. um, I probably 
would go down in history as the most <laughs> extraordinary human being of all time because I cannot. Yes. It is very, very difficult. Challenging. Yes, it's very sure. challenging. So what I would say is, you know, my that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. But what I what I would say is that when you can galvanize a group of people mm. around the idea, you're generally going to get more movement. Mm. So uh, the 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 person the, like the financial independence movement is a good example of this. Uh, so there's a there's a movement, uh, and they often go by the sort of name of Fire Financial Independence Retire Early, and uh, it's a very millennial concept, but it's not just for millennials, sure. and it's not just about retiring early, but it's about you know being really really um, uh, connected uh, to how you spend your money. Uh, and, uh, and trying to save well and, uh, and create independence early uh, so you have a little bit more control over your life. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I just bring that up because um, I've been seeing it pop up more and more and more uh, because the community is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, yes. it's, not a part of, you know, it's not a community that I am uh, participate in. I don't know people in the community personally, but I've been very, very impressed with how a lot of these folks have been able to to galvanize people around the idea yes. and then create opportunities for the people to connect with each other. Because when you get the people connecting with each other around the idea, the idea now lives on its own. So if you're somebody who wants to advance a movement or a cause and, and you keep all of the activity around yourself, it will likely fail. Correct. So if, however, we can we can we can create a community that feels like it's their idea also. Yes. It's going to be much more effective. So, for example, there's a great book uh, by Chris Voss, uh, who is, uh, uh, he was the former um, lead hostage negotiator for the FBI. Okay. And it, the book is called Never Split the Difference. It's a great book. I've heard about it. I got yeah. it. Yeah, it's a very popular book, and I was fortunate to have him on my podcast uh, and also um, to have dinner with him, and he's just a really neat guy. He's been through some extraordinary experiences. But one of the things he addressed in the book was a very simple concept that I think uh, speaks to your question. He said that when he would negotiate with hostage takers, now, understand, his job's much harder than a speaker's job, because <laughs> the consequences are right? pretty significant. He can't say, "Listen, <laughs> give me two hostages, and you can kill two hostages." Right. He can't, he's got to get everybody out safe. It, yeah. Everybody, yeah. it's a zero-sum game. Everybody, and so what? He, what they discovered is that very often, when people are trying to convince somebody of something or to convince somebody to do something, they will try to get the other person to say, "You're right," but the problem is. When somebody says you're right, what are they actually doing? They're telling you to shut up. They're like, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, fine. But instead, if we can try to get people to say, oh, that's right. Yes. Because if they say that's right, it's also their idea. Yes. And if it's their idea, now they're more connected to it, and they may help spread that message and move it forward. So if you get a whole group of people going, that's right, that's right, that's right, now you might move some change forward. But if you're going out in the world trying to get people to say, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, it's probably not going to spread. You're totally on. I looked at movements when we were looking at building global citizen as a movement. I looked at everything from 
you know, churches and like how, you know, to, to de decentralize movements, like literally where exactly as you said, how does an idea take, take life in the heart of someone such that if the leader or what have you passes, it still lives on because it's become in, in, a, in a way decentralized. In other Correct. words, it doesn't rest in some guru yes. uh, exclusively, yes. but actually has, 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 has grown ambassadors, if yes. you will, that can grow advocates that become their own ambassadors. And so it, it takes on a life of its own. And I love that idea because what you're, what you're saying ostensibly is where do you find that shared ground? Correct. That bridge. And, of course, all gurus are flawed figures. Sure. Just like all humans are yeah. flawed figures. So if you centralize an idea around one person, eventually the flaws of that person will be revealed. And sometimes there are horrible flaws like uh, um, who was the hot yoga? Bikram. Bikram yeah. yoga guy. Um, and sometimes they're just regular human flaws, that they're not perfect. Like, you know, uh, I remember I had um, uh, uh, an Aikido teacher uh, uh, named Yamada-sensei, and Yamada-sensei was the head of the United States Aikido Federation and one of the, um, one of the students of O-sensei, the founder of Aikido. So he was a, a great figure in the community. He was also an older Japanese man, um, which in his case meant he smoked cigarettes and drank sake a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I remember sometimes when people would come and they would discover that, they go, oh, I can't practice Aikido. He smokes cigarettes. And you're like, yeah, okay, listen, are you here? What are you here for? Yes. Do you know? So, so if you centralize around an individual, it's generally going to fail. Yeah. Uh, but if you can just try to take these ideas and spread them amongst people so that they feel like it's their idea also, and they say, yeah, that's right, well, then maybe it'll live on. I love that. Well said. Okay, so I want to, I wanna, first of all, I'm just so grateful for this conversation. Uh, it won't be our last. Uh, I want to ask a couple of questions. Uh, obviously, I want to ask where people can find you because you have a, a treasure trove of both books as well as workshops, et cetera. But if you were to distill down sort of three resources, uh, whether they be talk, particular talks you love or books that you love, um, that people could um, follow up this conversation with, as it relates to becoming a truly evocative uh, speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, give us a, a few resources that people could uh, follow up with. Sure. So, um, well, I'll start with uh, mine, and then I'll share some others. Great. So, heroicpublicspeaking.com. Heroicpublicspeaking.com. Uh, we've got a lot of free resources that you can uh, get there. Uh, and you could also read Steal the Show, which is... Uh, my book that came out in 2015. It was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and it really addresses what we've been addressing here today. And so that's a great place to start. You know, one of the things that uh, is really important uh, is to be very curious. Okay, so that may sound like an obvious statement, but sometimes when people come to me and say, listen, I want to do more speaking, I say, fantastic. Tell me what speeches you've watched lately. They say, well, it's, I haven't really seen too many... Go watch speeches. Yes. Someone says, I want to write a book. Great. What books are you reading? Well, nothing right now. Read books. Yes. Because you cannot be in a, I mean, you can, maybe you can, I don't know. I'm not going to use an absolute here, but it's unlikely that you're going to write a transformational book unless you're reading transformational books. Yes. It's unlikely that you're going to deliver transformational speeches unless you're seeing transformational speeches. So start in a really simple way, just go look at the top 10 most popular TED Talks of all time yep. and start to look at not the speaker, but the speech. Yes. Because I think what very often people do is they will, they will try to figure out why is that speaker so good? Yeah. I want to be like that speaker. 
But instead, look at why is that speech so effective? What are they doing in that speech that works so well? And if you can start to pick up the cues and start to thread together what works so well about these different speeches, now you start to get really curious about what you can create. So you got to be in it if you want to, you know, if you want to do it. Yes. You can't look at it from the outside uh, and then, I guess you can, if you want to get it outside, but it really makes a difference to read everything that you possibly can about that subject, even if there are things in the book that you're reading, like, I already know this, I already know this, because you find one thing in a book, just one thing that changes the way you see the world, your life will never be the same. Yes. Uh, so I do, you know, you've heard the expression, readers are leaders, etc. Uh, I really can't lean into this strongly enough. And when I was a kid, my father said to me, I was watching a lot of TV at the time. He said, Michael, if you don't start reading more, you'll never amount to anything. Now, my father's the sweetest man in the world. It's like the one thing that he said to me that was really kind of, yeah. and, uh, and he's still, I still give him a hard time about it and share it as much as I can publicly, as often yes. as I can, yeah. uh, just to give him a hard time. But uh, it really did stick with me. And so uh, to compensate for that, I wrote eight books. <laughs> <laughs> you made up for it. Yes, I made up for it. So, and my dad's a psychiatrist, which makes it even more ironic. Uh, so uh, in any event, I think that's, that's where we start. So, you know, there are so many good books out there and so many great speeches out there. But, um, but I think just start investigating and start getting curious. Uh, and, um, you know, you'll, you'll start to open up and expand your mind. And I think what you said about curiosity is so spot on. I mean, I think the, the, the humans that I've seen age the most gracefully, obviously health and relationship being a great corollary to that health uh, long term, but they're all curious. Yeah. They're all deeply curious. Yeah. And, and I just want to say this. My, da my dad actually challenged me when I was watching too much television. He challenged me to take a year off watching TV. I don't think I've ever mentioned that on the show. And that year was remarkable because when you take off, especially now in our screen addicted oh time, my gosh, yeah. when you start to unplug your brain and then go back to these amazing mentors which yeah. we have access to in the form of libraries and books, um, my God. So one of the places, you know, one of the things that sometimes people have a hard time with when they're starting to lean into this kind of work is, is doing the deep work because we're also very distracted and yeah. it does take a lot of time to really formulate your ideas in a yes. way that you know other people can process and consume, uh, and uh, Cal Newport wrote a book called Deep Work. He also wrote a book called uh, Digital Minimalism, uh, and those are excellent places to start because if you read Deep Work, you'll start to uh, figure out how you can create the space for yourself to do the deep work. Yes. You know, re I was working on this book that I mentioned uh, earlier that I'm writing with my friend Andrew, uh, and. I was reviewing um, a chapter that I had written, and I wasn't pleased with it. I kind of felt, ah, something's wrong. I can't put my finger on it. What is it? What's, what's the deal here? Um, and I started thinking about what's my process been on this chapter? Like, what's different about the way that I've been approaching this chapter? And what I realized is um, this is the first time in many, many years where I've worked on a book where I didn't, um, t I didn't take a lot of time off to work on the book. Uh, and I realized I was writing for 30 minutes and then doing something else because, uh, you know, I've got a business to run and I've got kids to raise and, you know, all the all that baloney life stuff gets in the way kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, and it felt like... I, and then I realized I've been writing from a place of knowing rather than from a place of curiosity. Oh, wow. So then I said, oh, I see. I need to create more space so that I can think more about how the reader is processing this. So together we can go on a, on a journey uh, where we're both curious, 
and I'm helping them make the discovery in the process yes. rather than here's what I know because that's sometimes less effective. I Actually, I need to ask you about that now because before we started recording, because you've written eight books and I'm now just embarking, I'm writing my book proposal as we speak. For, for those who are interested in writing a book, because I know most people would say if you ask them, they, they want to write a book. But as I'm now confronting it, right, like I'm <laughs> yeah. like actually like, okay, I'm committed to this yeah. now. Uh-huh. And this is scary. Yeah. Um, it's actually more scary to me than public speaking, but I've done a lot more public speaking than I have write books. Um, I love the way you put that because I've actually been thinking to myself, what do I, Bonnie Verrett? Do I go off into a cabin and like, you know, renounce life and go monastic and just like yeah. knock it out for two months? Or do I like get up early in the morning from like five to seven and just write my book? Like, yeah. what do you feel to be having written eight books? Because you gave some great, great insights. And I would ask you this off the, off the headphones, yeah. but since we're on, I, sure. it could benefit the audience. Sure. What have you found to be the, the most helpful insights to writing a book as someone who has now written eight uh, that could be beneficial for those listening. Well, write shorter books. <laughs> that's, that's one insight that I've had. I've been told uh, by a few of my readers, you know, you know, it wouldn't have been bad if it was shorter. I'm just, just letting you know. Look, here, here's the thing. If Hollywood knew what was going to be a hit, yeah. they'd only make hits. If publishers knew what was going to be a hit, they'd only buy hits. So... It's good going into the process, understanding that you don't know how people are going to respond to it. Yeah. That you just cannot force that outcome, and you can't really predict it. You can just do your best. Uh, and given that I've written so many books, uh, uh, I can attest to the fact that some of them have been much more effective than others, meaning some of them have sold hundreds of thousands of copies of books, and a couple of them sold like 50,000 copies of books. So... Those are very, very different numbers. And a couple of them turned into real perennial bestsellers, and others, you know, people couldn't care less about at this point. Uh, and and to, to knowing that that's normal is sometimes helpful. Yeah. Because it's not like you've only got one idea in you, yep. and this one thing that you're making has to be perfect. Yep. Because if you look at the careers of the greatest authors, the greatest filmmakers, the greatest musicians... They've all written things or produced things that people loved, and they've all written things or produced things that people went, meh. And sometimes it's timing. You know, just when the song came out based on what was happening in the world or, you know, uh, when the movie came out and what was going on in the world. Uh, And sometimes it's the focus of the creative, you know, where their focus is. Sometimes they're writing because they think they should write it. Yeah. And sometimes they're writing it. Something that really comes from them. Yeah, something that they feel really feel like I have to write this. That you know, as long as I'm alive, yeah. I have an opportunity to write something to be in service of some people. Yeah. That's a pretty beautiful thing. And then the other thing is to write for one person. Yeah. Even oh, though you want you know millions of people to read it, write for write for one person, rather than for everybody. Uh, and often, if you can if you can key in on who that reader is, who that ideal reader is, uh, then it makes the process much more intimate, mm. personal, and often much more effective. Powerful. Final question: What does peak mind mean to you? Mm. Well, uh, first thing that comes to mind is a is a is a mind that is free of distraction. 
and free of the need for more. A mind that feels like it has enough, but it's curious to see what else is going on in the world, uh, but not striving for more of everything. Uh, so it feels much more settled. Because if you feel settled, you can focus. Uh, you can be open uh, to different points of view. You can reflect on what you think you know and what you think you don't know. Uh, rather than a place where your mind is constantly distracted by a million different things uh, and in constant need of approval or recognition uh, or, you know, or, or, or something more sinister. So just that kind of peace and ease seems to me that it puts your mind in a peak state. And I have that feeling once in a while, but I, I would certainly like more of it. So I'm working on it. But one of the ways that I'm really working on is, is trying to uh, reduce distraction. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's been really helpful. You and me both. Michael Port, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much. Uh, heroic public speaking. Uh, I'll definitely be checking it out. I, my first touch point on it was today, and it was mind-blowing for me, obviously. I've never, I've never been like, hey, let's go find a, a, parking, a, a, lot. a parking lot to go record a, a podcast <laughs> yeah. in. But I was like, you know what? It's more valuable to seize the moment yeah, of course. than to let it pass. So yeah. I'm grateful for you making the time. You're, you are delightful. Thank you yeah. so much for this time. Thanks, you brother. really are. Okay. All right. And there you have it. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you got a ton of value from this episode with Michael Port. Uh, if you did, please go ahead and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Um, we've got over 225 uh, five-star reviews now, and I'm so grateful because it's helping with discovery. And I'm so grateful for all the new listeners. I'm so grateful for all the OG listeners and for your feedback. If you ever want, if there's ever ways you think that the show can be improved or guests that you'd like to see on, you can hit me up anytime at Michael Trainer on Instagram or Twitter, any of the social handles. I love it when you guys reach out, and uh, I try to reply to every comment, uh, every outreach uh, promptly. So super, super grateful for your engagement with this community and my commitments to keep bringing you valuable and insightful humans to help improve your life. So with that, please go out there and live your inspired life. <laughs>